Welcome to the September 15th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the efficacy of tranexamic acid prophylaxis in patients with hematological malignancies. Learn more about N-glycosylation as a therapeutic vulnerability in CalR mutant MPN and discuss how early initiation of disease-modifying therapy may be able to reduce myocardial fibrosis in sickle cell anemia. Our first blood article is entitled Prophylactic Tranexamic Acid in Patients with Hematologic Malignancy, a Placebo-Controlled Randomized Clinical Trial by Terry Gernsheimer from the University of Washington School of Medicine and colleagues. Treatment for hematological malignancies often requires transfusion support during the period of prolonged marrow hypoplasia. In 2013, 43% of platelets and 20% of all red cells were transfused in the scope of hematology oncology services. Despite prophylactic platelet transfusion therapy, a significant percent of patients will still experience grade 2 bleeding per the World Health Organization, or WHO, criteria. In the TOPS study, 43% of patients experienced grade 2 bleeding, and in the PLATO study, 70% of all enrolled patients and 79% of patients undergoing allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation experienced grade 2 bleeding, respectively. Antifibrinolytic agents are commonly used to prevent and treat bleeding in patients with platelet function disorders and coagulopathies. Tranexamic acid was first developed in the 1960s to reduce postpartum hemorrhage. It acts by blocking the lysine binding sites on plasminogen, thereby inhibiting fibrinolysis. Tranexamic acid and another antifibrinolytic agent, aminocaproic acid, have demonstrated decreased bleeding and mortality in orthopedic, cardiothoracic and organ transplant surgery, trauma, and obstetrical bleeding. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that tranexamic acid may be beneficial in thrombocytopenic bleeding because platelets are the largest cellular source of plasminogen activator inhibitor 1, or PI-1, which may be deficient in thrombocytopenic bleeding. Thrombocytopenia-related clots are friable, lyse rapidly, and provide a poor hemostatic plug, which points to potential PI-1 deficiency. To determine whether tranexamic acid could safely reduce bleeding and transfusion requirements in patients with hematologic malignancies, the authors conducted a multicenter randomized trial called American Trial Using Tranexamic Acid in Thrombocytopenia, or ATREAT. ATREAT enrolled a total of 356 patients undergoing chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or hematopoietic stem cell transplantation for hematological malignancies between June 2016 and June 2020. The mean patient age was 53.9 years, and 41.8% were women. When platelet counts fell below 50,000 per microliter, patients were randomized one-to-one to to three times daily of 1,300 mg tranexamic acid orally, or 1,000 mg IV, versus placebo, for a maximum of 30 days. A total of 330 patients were activated when their platelet counts fell below 30,000 per microliter. 279 patients, or 81%, had a complete outcomes assessment performed. 
The primary study outcome was incidence of WHO grade 2 bleeding or higher during the first 30 days after activation. Secondary outcomes included the number of platelet transfusions per subject and the number of days alive without WHO grade 2 bleeding or higher. Alternative measures of bleeding and both platelet and red blood cell transfusion frequency served as exploratory endpoints. Safety outcomes included the incidence of adverse events, thrombotic events, veno-occlusive disease, and deaths due to thrombosis within 120 days from activation, as well as all-cause mortality within 30 days of study drug discontinuation. WHO grade 2 bleeding or higher in the first 30 days after activation occurred in 50.3% of patients in the tranexamic acid arm and 54.2% of patients in the placebo arm the authors did not observe statistically significant differences in the secondary outcomes between the two treatment groups, which included the mean number of platelet transfusions per patient during the first 30 days after study activation, 7.7 versus 7.6, and the mean number of days alive without grade 2 or higher bleeding, 28.1 versus 27.7 days. Moreover, the mean number of red cell transfusions per thrombocytopenic day was 0.4 in both groups. Other bleeding or transfusion-related exploratory endpoints, as well as safety endpoints, were similar between the two treatment groups. Thrombotic events were rare in both treatment groups, occurring in six patients treated with tranexamic acid and nine patients treated with placebo, and there was no significant difference in the incidence of veno-occlusive disease and visual changes. However, central line occlusions were more common in the tranexamic acid group compared to the placebo group, occurring in 16.6% and 6.7% of patients, respectively. The authors concluded that prophylactic treatment with tranexamic acid compared to placebo did not significantly reduce the risk of WHO grade 2 or higher bleeding in patients with hematologic malignancies undergoing chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or transplant. In an accompanying commentary, Jeffrey Zwicker from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston notes that the results from ATREAT are in line with the previous somewhat disappointing trial results of tranexamic acid across a spectrum of hemorrhagic conditions. Most of the success of tranexamic acid to date has been observed in trauma and surgical settings. In other studies, tranexamic acid did not reduce the rate of postpartum hemorrhage following vaginal delivery, although it did improve outcomes in women with postpartum hemorrhage following cesarean delivery. It also failed to improve bleeding-associated mortality in patients with gastrointestinal hemorrhage and did not meet non-inferiority criteria for cardiovascular complications after non-cardiac surgery. However, Zwicker believes that the author's hypothesis about the existence of a tight window of fibrinolytic activation in thrombocytopenia, where antifibrinolytic therapy is most effective, is worthy of further exploration. In that regard, it would be interesting to further investigate whether fibrinolytic biomarkers, such as D-dimer, could predict therapeutic efficacy. Next up, we'll discuss the article entitled Whole Genome CRISPR Screening Identifies N-Glycosylation as a Genetic and Therapeutic Vulnerability in CalR Mutant MPN by Jonas Yutzi and Anna Marnith from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and colleagues. Cal reticulin, or CalR, mutations 
are frequent disease-initiating events in myeloproliferative neoplasms. Research to date has shown that CalR mutations alone are sufficient to cause MPN, occurring in approximately 20% to 25% of all MPN cases. These mutations typically consist of insertions or deletions in exon 9, which leads to a one base pair frame shift and the generation of a new mutant-specific C-terminus. The two most common CalR mutations in MPN account for approximately 80% of all CalR mutations and include a 52 base pair deletion, present in approximately 50% of patients, and a 5 base pair insertion, present in approximately 30% of patients. These mutations are almost exclusively heterozygous. CalR mutations induce oncogenesis through direct binding of the CalR mutant isoform to the thrombopoietin receptor MIPL within the endoplasmic reticulum, which facilitates its cell surface expression and activation in a ligand-independent manner. The interaction between CalR and MIPL, as well as proper MIPL cell surface expression, are dependent on N-glycosylation of MIPL. N-linked glycosylation is a complex process by which carbohydrates are added to asparagine residues of proteins, which then influences their stability, folding, subcellular localization, and function. Although the mechanism of mutant CalR-induced MPN is known to involve pathogenic binding between mutant CalR and MIPL, which is mediated by N-glycosylation, this finding has not yet been exploited therapeutically. Therefore, the goal of the current study was to identify and validate potentially unique genetic dependencies in CalR mutant MPN using a genome-wide CRISPR dropout screen. The authors performed a series of experiments on CalR-transformed cells and CalR mutant knockout mice, as well as in vivo pharmacological studies, stem and progenitor cell analyses, and tissue and glycan analyses to identify the genes and pathways that are differentially required for cytokine-independent growth of cells, investigators performed a whole-genome CRISPR-Cas9 knockout depletion screen in MIPL-expressing hematopoietic cells with the 52-base-pair-deleted mutant CalR. Investigators found that genes involved in the N-glycosylation pathway were differentially depleted in mutant CalR-transformed cells compared to control cells. Specifically, 669 genes were significantly depleted in mutant CalR-transformed cells compared to empty vector control cells grown in the presence of interleukin-3. Multiple potential enzymes critical to N-linked glycosylation were identified through the screen, indicating that disruption of any stage of the complex enzymatic process had an impact on mutant CalR function. DPM2, the most depleted gene in the genome-wide screen, is essential for protein and glycosylation. Single-gene CRISPR-Cas9 knockout validation studies targeting DPM2 found that the requirement for DPM2 for mutant CalR-driven cellular transformation is MIPL-dependent. This finding suggests that DPM2 loss impairs MIPL cell surface expression due to diminished MIPL and glycosylation. Because N-glycosylation is a multi-step process, the authors examined more than 60 different small molecules known to block various enzymes within this process, and found that half of these molecules blocked cytokine-independent growth induced by CalR mutations or mutated JAK2. A focused pharmacological in vitro screen 
revealed that chemical inhibition of N-glycosylation impairs the growth of mutant CalR-transformed cells by reducing MIPL cell surface expression. When the authors treated CalR mutant knockout mice with the N-glycosylation inhibitor 2-deoxyglucose, or 2-DG, they noticed a preferential sensitivity of CalR mutant cells to 2-DG as compared to wild-type cells, as well as normalization of key MPN disease features. Megakaryocyte colony-forming unit assays performed in human cells revealed that the inhibition of N-glycosylation significantly reduced megakaryocyte colony formation in CalR mutant bone marrow compared to bone marrow derived from healthy donors. Taken together, these findings suggest that N-glycosylation is a potential therapeutic target in CalR mutant MPNs. In an accompanying commentary, Sridhar Rao from the Versity Blood Research Institute and Karen Carlson from the Medical College of Wisconsin note that the findings by Yutzi, Marneth, and collaborators represent a critical preclinical step to identifying N-glycosylation as a potential therapeutic vulnerability in MPNs and an entirely new pathway for precision oncology approaches. The widespread role of N-glycosylation in a range of biological settings implied that targeted inhibition may be nonspecific to CalR mutant cells and may be toxic to normal cells. However, using rodent models, the authors were able to demonstrate that in vivo 2-DG treatment selectively targeted CalR mutant cells by increasing apoptotic pathway activity, consistent with a loss of cytokine-independent proliferation. Importantly, 2-DG treatment ameliorated the preferential growth advantage of CalR mutant long-term hematopoietic stem cells when mixed with wild-type cells, implying selectivity of N-glycosylation inhibition on mutant cells. Experiments with primary patient samples confirmed these findings. Rao and Carlson emphasize that the additional hits from the CRISPR screen identified protein secretion and unfolded protein response as additional potential therapeutic targets. What still needs to be explored is whether these pathways are independent of or dependent on N-glycosylation. Given the central requirement for hyperactive MIPL signaling across the many different mutations in MPNs, it is not surprising that N-glycosylation may be broadly applicable. Rao and Carlson believe that this approach may be especially useful for MPNs that lack JAK2V617F. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will discuss the report entitled Early Initiation of Disease-Modifying Therapy Can Impede or Prevent Diffuse Myocardial Fibrosis in Sickle Cell Anemia by Omar Nice from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine in Ohio and colleagues. Cardiopulmonary disease is an unmet therapeutic need and the leading cause of mortality in patients with sickle cell anemia, or SCA. Ventricular diastolic dysfunction superimposed on an anemia-related hyperdynamic state is the hallmark of SCA-associated cardiomyopathy. This cardiomyopathy clinically resembles heart failure with preserved ejection fraction in which interstitial fibrosis is a key cause of diastolic dysfunction that leads to pulmonary hypertension. Although diastolic dysfunction has been associated with early mortality in SCA, the underlying causes remain poorly understood. 
Diffuse myocardial fibrosis is a consequence of collagen deposition in the myocardial interstitium and is associated with systolic and diastolic dysfunction and the potential for arrhythmias. Previously, the authors demonstrated the presence of diffuse myocardial fibrosis in a group of 25 SCA patients who underwent cardiac magnetic resonance imaging. Three-quarters of these patients were receiving hydroxyurea at the time of imaging. Since fibrosis was universally present in this cohort, and in some patients as early as six years of age, the authors hypothesized that diffuse myocardial fibrosis begins in early childhood and that it can be prevented with uninterrupted use of SCA-directed disease-modifying therapy. To test their hypothesis, they conducted a study in 12 individuals with SCA and hemoglobin SS genotype at two medical centers, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and Children's Hospital Los Angeles. The mean patient age was 16.9 years, with a range from 7 to 28 years. The patients were treated with either hydroxyurea or chronic transfusions before the age of 6, and for a continual period of at least 5 years. None of the study participants received concomitant cardiovascular medications. Cardiac magnetic resonance imaging with gadolinium enhancement was performed for all patients. Extracellular volume fraction, or ECV, was measured before and 10 minutes after contrast injection and compared to normal ECV and ECV of sickle cell patients who had not received early treatment. Diastolic function was assessed by echocardiography. The mean age at the start of hydroxyurea therapy or chronic transfusions was 3.1 years. The mean duration of disease-modifying therapy at the time of cardiac magnetic resonance was 13.7 years. 8 of 12, or 67% of study subjects, had normal ECV values and no evidence of diffuse myocardial fibrosis. Compared to individuals with SCA who did not receive early treatment, the 12 studied patients had significantly lower mean ECV, 0.3 versus 0.44 respectively. None of the studied individuals had macroscopic fibrosis, as evaluated by late gadolinium enhancement imaging or myocardial hemosiderosis, evaluated by 2T star imaging. Furthermore, none of the studied individuals had diastolic dysfunction. The diastolic function of two individuals was classified as inconclusive. One had elevated ECV, while the other had normal ECV. In addition, left ventricular ejection fraction was preserved in all study participants. Taken together, these findings demonstrate that early initiation and continuous use of disease-modifying therapy for SCA may be able to impede or prevent the development of diffuse myocardial fibrosis. In an accompanying commentary, Sui Thain and Vandana Sakdev from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, Note that although the patient cohort studied by Nissan collaborators was small, the conclusions are hypothesis-generating and lay the groundwork for larger studies using cardiac magnetic resonance. An important question that should be addressed in future studies is what is the optimal diagnostic tool for assessing cardiac dysfunction in SCD patients and whether ECV is more beneficial than other assessments of cardiac dysfunction. Previous studies have shown that diastolic dysfunction assessed by echo is complex, and the efficacy has varied across different studies. 
In addition, since SCD-associated heart failure is typically characterized by high output with increased blood volume, many imaging parameters may not have the same normal thresholds in SCD patients compared to non-SCD patients. Therefore, there is an unmet need to identify a new imaging marker of high risk specific for SCD patients. Other questions that remain unanswered include how early disease-modifying therapy should be initiated, how the presence of high ECV may impact treatment decisions, and what markers can be used to monitor the response to therapy. Fine and Sakdev also wonder whether clinically available heart failure drugs may be useful in SCA patients, as they have shown antifibrotic effects, as well as improvements in diastolic function and or symptoms. They note that answers to these questions may lie in future studies focused on integrating imaging, clinical, and laboratory parameters from multiple organ systems using machine learning algorithms with the goal of performing more comprehensive risk stratification and assessment of disease severity. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.